Hey, welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. We're back with the trash. I'm Alicia. Hey, y'all, welcome back. We really do have the trash this week. Holy cats. Another week of trashy ladies this week. Mm-hmm. Using our theme song from Miss Patty LaBelle with Lady Marmalade. Seem fitting with our ladies this week and the only line of French that literally every American knows. Voulez-vous cacher? Avec moi. Say soi. What does that mean? Uh, will you go to bed with me tonight? Ah. There you go. You can say it in French, but you might not know what it means. Sure. We had two courtesans of different types this week. Stacy, you're bringing us the story of Bonnie Lee Bakley, who is best known as a murder victim. Um, actor Robert Blake was her husband and was he was tried for her murder. Was one of her husbands. She had really had a. There was. The murder thing is very sad, but not the most interesting thing about her very trashy life. So we get into that. And then you have almost like a mirror image, but same person. But different. Uh, This week I'm covering Pamela Digby, Churchill Hayward Harriman, (laughs) oft married courtesan of the 20th century, uh, involved with every powerful man. This story the title on this episode is going to be like 8,000 characters long. <laughs> Even though only one trashy divorce is involved in her story, it is the high water mark of individual trashy level. Pamela. Wow. What a, what a story. We have some shout outs to give as we pull out the magic mirror this week. For our new supporters on Patreon, remember over on the Trash Candy platform on patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. We've got content Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every single week, all levels. If you need some extra trash candy in your life, you can find us over there. Absolutely. Just like these fine folks. Who do we find in our magic mirror this week? First, we mispronounced. We did. We're terrible at pronunciation. Anyway, thank you so much to Layla. Layla. Whose name we mispronounced last week. Patty G, Christine A, Desiree G, Sarah L, Kelsey R, Jackie B, and Ansley T. Huge thanks. Melissa D, Jen G, Lori P, Jennifer, Ollie, Kashmir, Jackie L. Love All y'all. Right. Thank you. We were so happy to see you in the Magic Mirror. Thanks for your support over Absolutely. on the Patreon. And without further ado, would you like to dive into our dumpster of the week? So much trash. Let's go, go, go. So, Stacey, you just let me know there are no tears in this story at all for me. You do not need to worry about right. I did just listen to something a little bit weepy, and I'm like, oh, stop <laughs> this now. No, I mean, I'm not saying you won't feel empathy for my subject, but you're not going to be overwhelmed with empathy for my subject. Talk to me. Who made some choices in life. <laughs> Don't we all? Imagine spending your whole life chasing fame often in criminal, hurtful, and immoral ways, only to finally achieve it as the victim in a high-profile murder case. That, more or less, is the story of Bonnie Lee Bakley, whose 2001 murder, when she was just 44 years old, ensnared the last of her ten, but probably many, many more husbands, actor Robert Blake, at a minimum, Okay. in a years-long trial that made headlines around the world. And this was requested, by the way, her story was requested in our Facebook group by Bleda. Thank you. 
So this was a trashy true crime case, but incredibly the same could reasonably be said of basically the rest of Bonnie Lee Bakley's adult life. From scamming vulnerable older men, to running a mail-order pornography business, to being married ten verified times, there's a lot of trash to unpack in the abbreviated life of my subject this week. Speechless. Sure. Bonnie was born June the 7th of 1956. She's a Gemini in Morristown, New Jersey, and was largely raised by her grandmother. Her family was poor. There were two siblings and a half-sibling, as well as perhaps sexual abuse inflicted by her father, who would himself later be beaten to death by cops at the homeless shelter where he was living when Bonnie was like in middle school or something. This is terrible. Yes. Early on, Bonnie decided that the way out of all of this was stardom. And along with her friend Christina Shire, she headed to New York City at the age of 16 with the bright lights on her mind. How'd that go? Some have suggested that Bonnie may not have had great talent for acting or modeling or singing, all of which she tried. They were extras in a couple movies. Like, some things happened. Okay. They were not completely striking out, but they were not, you know, there was no quick path to stardom there. There was no rags to riches to be had. It was not her experience in front of the camera that seems most relevant during this period either. She was she was taking class, uh, Actor Studio, Barbizon School of Modeling. Okay. She, she meets a young guy named Evangelos Pulakis, who was at that moment having some significant issues with U.S. immigration authorities. Oh, no. And was desperately in need of a wife, a, an American wife, to keep him in well, that helps. New York City. Yeah. Bonnie named her price. He paid it, and soon after she pocketed the money, she walked out on her first husband, who was soon deported. <laughs> I assume back to Greece. Wow! <laughs> Feeling any need to cry? <laughs> it's brutal. That is fairly brutal. Mm -hmm. And for all I know, she was like 17 years old when this happened, right? Like, this was her first marriage of many, so... Well, and what do you say if you're him? But I paid her to marry me. She's the criminal here. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> Woo. Well, the few acting and modeling gigs she did get were exciting. They were not launching her into stardom, and they were not filling her bank account up. She got a picture published. <laughs> oh! She got a picture published in Hustler magazine in okay. June of 1977, but the biggest impact that had was that neighbors would knock on her mother's door to ask if she, Bonnie's mom, was in Hustler because they looked alike. <gasps> Mama. Oh, oh. <laughs> gradually sensing... <laughs> gradually sensing that she was not personally headed to the A-list... She set her sights on the next best thing. She would marry an A-lister. Okay. She was particularly focused on Jerry Lee Lewis oh my for God. whatever reason. Great Balls of Fire, that dude. He is the still to be covered mm -hmm. on this mm -hmm. podcast and is the trashiest. Future Trashy Divorces alum, Jerry Lee Lewis. So she decided to emulate him in one key way. In 1977, when she was about 21, she married her first cousin, a guy named Paul Garon. They'd have two kids together, although the marriage seems maybe more like a business move than a romantic one. He was kind of like a neighborhood tough guy. He didn't like to work much, 
Um, he well, had a think growing up with him as your cousin, you'd realize this sort of thing. Yeah, it was it was weird. Like this one, her family has always struggled to kind of explain how this happened. But okay, but maybe how this happened is that this is when Bonnie began really devoting herself to her mail order pornography and grifting business. I didn't think you were going to say God. <laughs> <laughs> and she needed someone to check various mailbox drops around the state. Maybe is. Because her business is that expansive? It becomes so, yeah. So here's how this would work. Bonnie would put personal ads in swinger magazines, porn magazines, and other periodicals targeting, you know, lonely men. She had a variety of fake names, professions, stories explaining that she needed money for this or that. Hi, I'm Claire. I'm a nursing student. Can you help me get through school? Hi, I'm Laura. I can make you feel good. If you send me a bus ticket, I'll come right over. Oh, I These bet sorts you of things. Will. Yeah. When men responded, their financial contribution was rewarded with naked photos, usually of Bonnie herself, but I don't think exclusively. Okay. Not sure if she had like a network of friends slash models or Cousins. if she was, right, if <laughs> she was getting pictures from other sources. I'm not really, I tried to go deeper into the audacity of this scam. The web is a little limited in what it would tell me. <laughs> there are certain things you don't want to search for. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Browser history and all. Yeah. Okay. So Bonnie was very good at her job and these not relationships that she was having could become quite involved and expansive over time. So her daughter with Paul, um, Holly Garon, Told Barbara Walters in a 2015 interview, she was a shrewd businesswoman. She ran the business. She sold pictures of naked women, a little bit of pornography, and she'd spend time on the phone asking for plane tickets or just whatever she wanted. Oh. Right? Like, okay. her her daughter loves her. Like, her, her daughter says she was just an awesome mom. And Awesome. Yeah. This was the model that she grew up as, like, what women could do is just like, yeah, well, I have this need and I'm just going to ask for it. <laughs> It's not the worst. It's terrible, but it's not the worst. Um, hey, that's freedom. Yeah. I mean, that's not terrible. The We will get into the fraud. The grifting, and, the fraud, yeah. the criming. Yeah. yeah. I'm not even judging the pornography part. Like, no, whatever. No, 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 that's no. fine. However, as she developed the business, her cons evolved as well. And at some point, she was stealing credit cards and forging driver's licenses to accommodate more than 50 aliases. <gasps> But before we get too much further along in the story, we need to go back to Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire, the cousin marrying musical legend that she was obsessed with. As her financial standing improved as a young adult, she began flying around the country to see him perform. Eventually, she meets him. They become friendly in 1982. This is the same year that she divorces her cousin, Paul. Oh, Polly. And while we're going to fast forward to 1990, let it be known that from 1984 to 1987, Bonnie was married to a Robert Moon. And in 1988, she was briefly married to a retired cop named DeMart C. Besley. This union was annulled soon after it began, and it also produced an early investigation into Bonnie's life and scams because this former cop did not take well to being conned. <laughs> wow. Late 80s, maybe 1990, uh -huh. she moves to Memphis to be closer to Jerry Lee. She gets to be... <laughs> like you do. Right. Her she heart wants, gets then. to be close friends with Jerry Lee's sister. And over the next few years, I guess she did have an affair with Jerry Lee Lewis, who was married at the time. 
She big time wanted him to leave his wife and marry her, but he was not really into that. And then in 1993, she gave birth to a baby that she named a daughter, Jerry, J-E-R-I, Jerry Lee. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so begins insisting that Jerry Lee, the adult one, leave his wife, marry her, and they can raise baby Jerry Lee. Is, in fact, <coughs> not Jerry Great Ball of Fire, the one who is the... He is not a... Lu- uh, the daughter is not a Lewis, it turns okay. out. So, yeah, Jerry Lee is like, I'm sorry, we're going to need some paternity testing here before I do something like, I don't know, abandon my current family for you. And it was, yeah, it was not. So the baby gets shipped up to New Jersey where Paul is busy raising the other two kids. No! And apparently doing clerical and admin work for her pornography Maybe just the pornography side of her porn and grift business? Not super clear. In what I think is probably a pretty typical story from Bonnie Lee Bakley's life, an 82-year-old named William Weber came across one of Bonnie's personal ads one day, I think he's in Florida, and the pair struck up a correspondence. Soon, presumably after Bonnie had asked a series of innocuous-sounding questions and William had proudly volunteered some facts about his personal situation— Bonnie appears on his doorstep. They were married right away. And a week later, Bonnie was gone forever with a bunch of William's carefully saved money. Oh my God. William's granddaughter interviewed after both his death and Bonnie's death said, Bonnie was into my grandfather's life for one week and basically walked off with $80,000. Holy cat. This is just grift. Yeah. Bonnie was a very cold, calculated con woman, and what she did to my grandfather is something I'll never forgive. So William Weber was Bonnie's sixth known husband. Oh my god. Number five had been Joseph Brookshire, whom she married in 1992 and disappeared on the next day. One day. One day? He annulled the marriage later. This is where it's kind of hard to know exactly what was going on in her life. She's got forged or stolen IDs for like 50 separate identities. She's got a network, like a nationwide network of men that she's become quite proficient at grooming for fraud. And it's entirely possible that she did the marry, steal, abandon thing far more often than can be verified because of all of these fake identities. Yeah, who knows? At Robert Blake's trial for her murder, one of his lawyers would allege that she may have been married as many as uh, 28 times. In the, oh, in the course of her work. Whoa. In the course of her work. This is what she did. For, this was her day job. Um, while scamming many, many more men for money without actually tying the knot. I mean, nice work if you can get it. I guess. Okay. Grifting. So all these scams were just bill paying exercises for her because Bonnie was still obsessed with stardom. That was the real goal. Gotta get the rent paid, though. So... You know, your William Weber's, your DeMart Blazy or whatever that guy's name was. You know, those are just a means to an end. Sure. She's got to marry an A-lister. So her grand plan was still somehow to skid into a bridal gown beside a famous actor or musician. Along the way, she bought a house in Thousand Oaks, California. Initially, it was a rental. But she was going to move her whole family, mom, sister, kids... Ex-husband. Um, or out. her future star husband that she hasn't met yet? Well, okay. into the California house. They were all going to go to California. Okay. With an Aiken in their heart, I guess. <laughs> in California, she was able to gain entry into some rarefied circles 
and pursue men like Frankie Valli, Dean Martin, Gary Busey, and Christian Brando, son of Marlon. According to writer Deanne Stillman in an L.A. Observed piece from 2008, look in your show notes. This actually was a very cool little article or article section. Bonnie, quote, would doggedly track down celebrity addresses, information about where they went and what time, and even what property they owned and how much it was worth. But there was madness in her method. She was the ultimate fan, a weird citizen imprinted from her very birth to need fame, to seek the famous, to win love and approval only by association with the famous. Her life would be complete if only she could stand in fame's glare, or even its shadow. The wattage did not matter as much as proximity, closeness that would take away her pain and make her immortal. So, we're about to take a little tangent into the odd life of Christian Brando. Christian Devi Brando was born May 11th, 1958, and he was the emotionally abused son of Marlon Brando and actress Anna Kashfi. After their trashy divorce, young Christian was a constant source of conflict between the parents. Their custody fight over him lasted 12 years, wow. with uh, Marlon Brando finally prevailing when Christian was 13 years old. Perfect age. This to is going to s- go mm-hmm. great. I already know that this does not go does great Does not go great at all. A year or so later, his mom picked him up from school while his dad was in France filming Last Tango in Paris. Normal enough, I guess, except that she drives him to some of her hippie friends. It was 1972 across the border in Baja, California. She had promised them $10,000 if they would keep him from his father, but she showed up without the money. So <gasps> instead, they basically kidnapped him, hiding him from both parents. Holy cow. Marlon had to hire private investigators to track him down, and Christian was rescued from a tent in the Mexican jungle with a raging case of pneumonia. You are... I'm not. He's like 14. Ironically, or I'm not even sure what the term is for this, when uh, Christian Brando died in 2008 at the age of 49, pneumonia is what killed him. He had been hospitalized for like two weeks with pneumonia that finally killed him. At the age of 49, I don't know if... I don't know if he had some damage from... This earlier, I don't know. Anyway, so Christian didn't exactly spring from the most loving and stable of homes. He's one of uh, 11 children that Marlon Brando had with a bunch of women. On May 16th, 1990, Christian responded to his half-sister Cheyenne Brando's report that her boyfriend of four years had been hitting her by shooting him to death at their father's house. Later evidence would suggest that Cheyenne may have been having mental health issues at the time, and even Christian later said that her story was likely untrue. So, you know, there's a dead guy for not very good reasons. In any case, Dag Drollet, the boyfriend, was dead, and Christian was charged in the killing. Marlon had Cheyenne checked into a psychiatric hospital in Tahiti, Uh. covering your bases, which complicated the prosecution's efforts to try Christian for first-degree murder, when Cheyenne was continually unable to testify by virtue of receiving psych help in a different country, a deal was worked out for Christian to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter and serve five years. Robert Shapiro of O.J. Oh Simpson trial fame stories are roller coaster. was his lawyer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This what was, does this have to do with Bonnie Lee Bakley? Right. This was a huge Hollywood story at the time, and Bonnie immediately connected with the emotionally broken origin story of Marlon Brando's son. We're going to bond over over something. Okay. She started writing to him in jail, including sending nude photos because, I don't know, she heard he's into pornography or he told her or 
I don't know. He's in jail, of course. Like, yeah. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in that LA Observed piece, Stillman says that she was also writing to the then incarcerated Robert Downey Jr., but that Downey never opened her letters. Like, could have been a few different marks happening there, but Downey just wisely did not open her letters. Christian gets out of prison in 1996. He and Bonnie hook up. I think they were low-key hooking up for the next few years. We're just going to put a pin in that. I mean, they must have been because we're going to put a pin in that. Let's not forget Bonnie's day job, though. In 1994, I just am going to put quotes around married now because these were all fraudulent unions, of course. (laughs) My mind is blown. In 1994, she married E. Robert Tellefson a union that lasted six weeks before she vamoosed and he eventually had it annulled. That was a long one. He was 83. Oh my God. By the way, one of her cons was to tell these older gentlemen that she could never sleep with a man without being married to him. And once they were married, she would forge signatures to get her name on their house titles and car titles. Like, it was, it was elaborate. It was fairly elaborate. It was really gross. 1995, she married a guy who actually kind of made sense for her. This dude holds the Guinness World Record for having the largest number of monogamous marriages. Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) His name was Glenn Wolf. He was a Baptist preacher in Blythe, California. And during the course of his life, 1908 to 1997, he married 29 times, with marriages lasting anywhere from 19 days to 11 years. 29 times? Yeah, he married several wives twice. (sighs) Why not? So, like... Wikipedia like has it numerically there there were two after Bonnie but Bonnie was his 29th wife and I don't know if she was like I marry all the time too let's <laughs> I don't know this story is a roller coaster their marriage was an old soon after oh, God. <laughs> in 1996 while she was exploring relations with Christian Brando she married a guy named John Ray they would divorce in 1998 that's nine here's ten In 1999, Bonnie met an over-the-hill actor named Robert Blake, September 18th, 1933, Virgo, at a jazz club in Los Angeles. People who knew them said their relationship became sexual right away at Bonnie's, I don't know, invitation, insistence, I don't know. And that Bonnie told Robert she was on birth control, so everything was cool. She was not on birth control. Oh, my God. And in the fall of 1999, Bonnie learned that she was pregnant. Dear Lord. Problematically, she believed, or maybe wanted to believe, that Christian Brando, two years her junior, was the father, not Robert Blake, 23 years her senior. Wow. But she couldn't be sure, and Blake demanded a paternity test. Okay. Turns out that Bonnie's new daughter, Christian Shannon Brando, was actually Robert Blake's daughter, so her name was changed to Rose Lenore Sophia Blake. Okay. And apparently, she and Christian... Came up with the first name together. Like she, I think she really wanted to have a kid with Christian Brando. <laughs> anyway, so Robert Blake, perhaps wisely, had some significant qualms about Bonnie's parenting skills. So he agreed to marry her if she would sign a custody agreement with him. It was a very strict document and strict enough that her lawyer told her not to sign it. And it stipulated that she could only spend time with Rose if she was supervised. Bonnie's friends and family could only visit her with Robert's written permission, and it stipulated that if either party opted to end the marriage, the other would retain custody of Rose. So he really, this was really all about protecting this kid. Finally, Bonnie's forever dream of obtaining stardom, even if it meant marrying into it, was happening. 
and she eagerly signed on the line in October of 2000. November of 2000, Bonnie Lee Bakley became Bonnie Lee Bakley Blake, the second wife of Robert Blake. She was overjoyed, but nothing really changed in her life. She kept her mail-order pornography and scam business going. Oh, my God. Allegedly to Robert's great frustration. Great. Her final marriage lasted just six months. On May 4th, 2001, Bonnie Lee Bakley was shot to death while sitting in Robert Blake's car outside Vitello's restaurant in Studio City, California. Robert said that he was not present when the shooting happened. He had returned to the restaurant after their dinner to collect a gun he had left inside. That doesn't sound it was, suspicious I know, at I, all. Yeah, I remember this at the time, and it was such a weird story. Like, you went in to retrieve your gun, and meanwhile, some rando shot your wife. Anyway, that gun, the gun he retrieved was not the gun that shot his wife. Yeah, it was a weird story, but it was his story. And he was arrested about a year later. Like, LAPD really struggled to figure out what was going on here. He was acquitted at trial, although it really, there was plenty of evidence that he had certainly been looking around for someone to take out Bonnie. Like, did he get that far with anybody? No one knows, because problematically... There were decades worth of jilted dudes who could also work as suspects. Um, I I think they also did try to suggest that Christian Brando was a legit suspect because she had misled him about the pregnancy too or something. I mean, there was just a lot going on. And in the end, the jury could not get to beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. (laughs) You left your gun at the dinner table, but if it's not the same gun... It's either a very clever alibi well, or and the wrong gun, wrong place. Yeah, I think the murder weapon was recovered like in a dumpster nearby and it had been covered in oil and there was no gunshot residue or oil residue on Robert Blake. Huh. They're like, it doesn't seem like... Beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, like, yeah. well, I mean, he could not have apparently fired the shots himself, but some of the charges were solicitation for murder. Yikes. There, I think there was a stronger case there, but but also any of these other hundreds of guys. Robert Blake went free, but Bonnie's adult children filed a civil suit against him afterward, which was more productive from their end. He was ordered to pay them $30 million for the wrongful death of Bonnie Lee Bakley. Okay. That was reduced to $15 million in 08 on appeal. I don't know if Robert Blake killed Bonnie or hired someone to kill Bonnie on his behalf or not, but I do know that Robert Blake may be the last man in a long string of them that Bonnie Lee Bakley ruined financially. His trials left him millions of dollars in debt and his advanced age and, you know, reputation as a possible murderer mean that his employment options have been, to put it mildly, limited. And after all was said and done, he filed for bankruptcy and has mostly steered clear of the spotlight. So that is the very trashy life of Bonnie Lee Bakley, who was apparently a very well-known figure among the readers of a certain set of magazines starting in the 1970s and moving forward into the digital age. In her 44 years, she conned countless men out of millions of dollars while building what seems like a fairly epic by-mail pornography business. And if that's all it had been, we might look back at her as some kind of inspired entrepreneur, but the fraud, theft, and heartbreak that she inflicted far and wide just make that impossible. So I'm giving Bonnie Lee Bakley 100 trash cans because that appears to be the upper limit of the speculated marriages that she may have fraudulently entered oh, into. Oh, 
Lord. Over the course of the quarter century or so that she was active as a con artist and fraudster. And it's amazing to me that, like, to this day, there may be recorded marriages based on her aliases, like, all over the country. That, like, I don't know, the dude died soon after and, and it was never, there was, it was never annulled or divorced or whatever. So, yeah, she wanted to be famous and. I'm glad our roller coaster cart has pulled back into the trashy depot yeah. after that. That was a wild ride. That's, yeah. You wish that she had had a kinder childhood, but interesting story. Thank you. Yeah, you're Stacey. welcome. No tears, huh? No, no, tears. no. I'm too shocked and speechless for most things. Let me get my uh, words back. Sure. We'll take, take a, a little quick break. break. Hear from our sponsors this week, and I'm coming back what I originally esteemed as pretty trashy, but mm. I don't know. Mm. We'll That's see. That's a hell of a story. We'll see. All right. See you on the flip, y'all. <laughs> Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Okay, so your very trashy story this week intersects with your Swans series that you're doing on Patreon? It sure does. My subject this week is not a swan per se, but she sure did sleep with all of their husbands. And the swans were Truman Capote's coterie of society ladies or whatever, right? Correct. Okay. We've covered Babe Paley so far and Slim Keith. Mm -hmm. We've got a few more to talk about, but Pamela Digby, Churchill, Hayward, Harriman. There's a lot of names there. Is not a swan. But her story is entirely adjacent. It is unique. It is unlikely ever to be repeated. It is safe to say that no one could have predicted the impact that she would have on 20th century politics, society, and industry when she was a young lass growing up in the Dorset countryside. Pamela's life is a testament to resilience, determination, reinvention, and maybe a magic vagina. 
I, I don't know. I'll let you tell me what kind of power she has after you hear this story. Okay. So throughout her life, Pamela would be a snubbed debutante, a trusted confidant and companion to her father-in-law, Winston Churchill. Wow. A paramour of some of the world's richest men, a high society cast-off, a despised stepmother, a formidable political consultant, an accomplished diplomat, and a charismatic enigma. Hmm. Okay. Her allure to men was a mystery to many people, but whatever your opinions are about Pamela Harriman, it cannot be denied that she was a fighter, a charmer, and a seductress who refused to give up. Although she will spend a great majority of her life as a modern-day courtesan, she will end her life as a respected diplomat. In the glamorous and center stage way that she lives, she will die in the same fashion. Pamela Harriman will suffer a stroke while swimming in the pool at the Ritz Hotel in Paris, where decades earlier... She witnesses the liberation of Paris alongside Ernest Hemingway. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Pamela's only son, Winston Churchill, he's mostly abandoned by Pamela and left with family or nannies while she goes off and pursues her own interests and desires. The younger Winston Churchill becomes a member of parliament and as an adult will tell <laughs> biographer Christopher Ogden, my mother was too busy whoring around. For him to enjoy Christmas when he was a child. Yeah. Her list of love affairs will rival any of the trashiest novels in history. Her lovers are the wealthiest and most powerful men in the 20th century. She's got this magnetic quality of making men feel like they're the center of the universe. And you are the most important person in the world. And have you heard about my magic vagina? So even at the age of 73, People Magazine names her one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. This is 1993. Wow. She and Gregory Peck are the only septuagenarians on the list. (laughs) Truman Capote looks upon Pamela with sort of a bemused respectfulness, calling her a quote unquote marvelous primitive. Hmm. She's not a swan. So growing up at a time when a young woman had to rely on men to build a successful life, Pamela is super willing to work inside the system that she believes is the construct. But she's going to do it her way. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She'll learn her skills in seduction early in her life. And her love affairs literally are still interesting in her 70s. She's still making headlines. If there was ever a story made for trashy divorces, because there's only really one trashy divorce here, but the trashy adjective on Pamela, whoa, she's the queen. Let's talk about it. Pamela Digby, March 20th baby. So technically she's a Pisces, but she is born in the cusp of rebirth. So she gets all the bravery of a Pisces with all the energy of an Aries. Okay. Pamela has a lot of both bravery, and energy. She's born in 1920 to Kenny and Pansy. Okay, Kenny and Pansy have a lot of names, but for the sake of the story, these are their non-titled names, Kenny and Pansy. Dad is described as sweet and kind. Mama is described as a social climber and will pass those expectations on to their daughter. Kenny and Pansy get married and 
Nine months later to the day, here comes Pamela. Also that year, Pamela's grandfather dies, which will elevate Daddy Kenny to a title. He is the Uh, 11th Baron Digby. Okay. Which means inherited land, wealth. There's a home in Grubsner Place in London. There's a castle in Ireland. There's about 50,000 pounds a year. But inheritance taxes are a thing in 1921. Kenny's going to sell some property. He's going to get a job to help pay for the taxes. He's going to end up moving his family to Australia after the Irish castle burns down in 1922 by Irish nationalists Mm. after the partition in Ireland. Dad wins big at the racetrack in Australia. Classic stuff. I mean, this is just quite so proper. The family comes back to England. More kids happen. Pamela is going to be the oldest of four kids. She's got two sisters and a brother. Classic British upbringing. Governesses, horses, countryside sort of nonsense. And all through her life, Pamela is going to tell of these house parties and this very glamorous social thing that her family was into, but they really weren't. The Digbys don't have that kind of cash. Or maybe that kind of cachet. Well, as well. Mm -hmm. So they are part of the British aristocracy, but they are the lowest rung. Right, right. So the British aristocracy goes Duke, Marquess, Earl, Viscount, Baron. So they are the kindergartners on the British aristocracy scale. Right. And it sounds like they're sort of the working class barons anyway. Like they're... Well, they're just not. You get a job in parliament, you get a job in civil service. Like, if you need to make cat, like, these aren't men who work. Right. I'll give you a kind of a good example here. The family has a title and some lands, but their lands are going to pull in about 16,000 pounds a year, whereas a family that would be considered wealthy in the aristocracy would pull in about 75,000 per year. So, they're not quite the. Uh, they're they're, they're the, not the jet set. They're the old Chevrolet set. They're the mm-hmm. shabby aristocrats. But the family's making it. And again, Pamela in life is going to boast about her very important family and all the contributions they made to the... But in reality, as aristocracy goes, her family is not as remarkable as some other families might be. But hey, Pam comes by and honestly... Dad is educated at the best schools. He is the youngest officer to command a Coldstream Brigade in World War I. He's wounded twice. He wins a lot of medals. Mom, Pansy, is a strong believer in Pamela and is going to set this daughter up with tremendous confidence. You are the most beautiful girl in the world. And she'll tell everyone she knows that isn't my daughter the most beautiful girl in the world. But at the time... Pamela is thought of as a little chubby and not really at all that good looking. And I say this being a well-nourished person. (laughs) I'm a little chubby too. I don't say that word to be mean, but that was the vernacular used to describe her at the time. Pansy, in addition to the you're the most beautiful girl in the world routine, will also teach her daughter Pamela to hide all of her feelings and never complain. And every time you get knocked down, you get back up again. Fall down seven, stand up eight. That's mom. So by the time that Pamela's a teenager, she is so bored with the countryside and she's longing for the excitement of London. It's all sheep. 
<laughs> as far as the eye Pinnacle can endorse it. <laughs> Green grass and sheep. 1938 is the year that Pamela, along with 1,000 other young aristocratic women, will be presented at court. She's debbing out. Debbing out. There are dances and balls and a whole season for the wealthiest of families. So think Bridgerton. That's ex- I wrote in my notes. <laughs> think Bridgerton. The Digbys are able to fund a little bit better of a season for Pamela as Dad Kenny, lucky at the track, wins big again in the Grand National to <laughs> support some of these debutante type activities. But Pamela's debutante season really isn't considered super successful. The family can't afford all the trimmings and a new gown for every party. Like, she's selective about... They probably didn't know about the magic vagina yet. Oh, I don't think the parents... Yeah, not yet. It was just unrevealed <laughs> to parents. But Pamela's like season not good. Her dance card is often not filled. People at the time consider her chubby and pushy and not at all appealing to men. So going back to our, what the hell month is it? Our It's January now. Our December Tuesday series about the Mitfords. We're going to have right. a Nancy Mitford quote here about Pamela at this time. Nancy Mitford says, she was a redheaded bouncing little thing regarded as a joke by her contemporaries. Hmm. Don't feel bad for Pamela. She's about to show them all. So after the Deb season, Pamela stays in London and begins her courtesan ways. She's definitely into the preference for older men. She loves making quick trips to Paris. Pamela is extremely deft and skilled at getting men to give her money and gifts. Something our subjects share this week. And it's going well enough. And then there's a blind date. Sort of. Pamela is staying with Lady Mary Dunn, who is friends with Randolph Churchill. And Randolph Churchill calls Lady Mary, hey, I need a date for tonight. And Lady Mary Dunn says, oh, I know this beautiful redhead. But later in life, Lady Mary's like, if you want to have dinner with a redheaded whore, go around my flat and you'll find her about Pamela. Yikes. Okay, sure enough. Randolph does go around her flat. Finds Pamela. They go on a date. There's dinner and dancing at the Ritz. Randolph Churchill proposes to Pamela that night. Wow. What? Is it love at first sight or something else? Let's talk about it. Well, Randolph Churchill is the only son of Winston and Clementine Churchill. He's intelligent, confident, handsome, and very, very spoiled. He's gifted in a lot of ways, but old Randolph likes to gamble and drink to the excess and is already well known in society for his rampant womanizing. Hmm. Randolph is called Randy, not just because it's short for Randolph, if you get my drift. <laughs> he likes trashy women. Uh, <laughs> the more unsuitable, the better. The more unavailable, the better. So we're looking at showgirls and married women. Hmm. One of his notable flings, old Randy, was with a young beauty named Claire Brokaw, who would later be famous for her writing and known by her married name of Claire Booth Luce, hmm. who will write the play The Women, one of my trashy favorites mm-hmm. in 1936. Okay, so by the time Randy meets Pamela, his reputation 
rude, unreliable, unpredictable, chauvinist, like everybody. There's Randy Churchill again coming to ruin the party. He does not want to settle down. He does not want to make a commitment. But like most British men in the aristocracy, what do you need? A son. True. So Randy is determined to marry and produce an heir to carry on the Churchill name. And at this point, World War II happening, he is so convinced that he's going to die in the war. I, I cannot afford another second to waste for finding a wife. So, so desperate is Randy Churchill that <laughs> in the two weeks before he has his blind date with Pamela, he has proposed to no less than five other women and been turned down. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, not the sweeping off the feet that one might oh, imagine no. at first. Okay. Everybody in London is telling Pamela not to marry him. But Pamela's like, hold up. While the prospect of marrying someone who tells me that they don't love me and just wants me to have a kid before they die in war doesn't sound great, it is probably my best prospect. I'm about to get the Churchill name. I get away from my parents. I get an important last name with important connections. This is a great way for me to move up and achieve my internal ambitions. Years later, Pamela's going to tell an interviewer at the Washington Post about her marriage to Randolph. And she says, I was getting so terribly upset by seeing all my friends going off as they dramatically thought to be killed. And I thought how marvelous it was to be with somebody about whom I didn't give a damn. Well, Meet Pamela. Perfect union. So the couple will marry October 4th, 1939, three weeks after their blind date. Randolph stationed away from London, so Pamela is going to end up spending most of her time with her father-in-law, Winston Churchill, who had just recently been named Prime Minister. So Pamela moves in with Winston at 10 Downing Street, or at the bomb shelter below the residence, because it's wartime, or at the Churchill's Country Retreat. For whatever reason, Winston Churchill loves Pamela. And the two have this bond. She is attentive to him. She listens to him endlessly. She is steadfast in her devotion to him and everything he says and all of his beliefs. And Winston loves her boorish sense of humor. Pamela does do her part. She gives birth to that son, Winston Spencer Churchill, Hmm. October 10th, 1940. The grandson and namesake of Winston Churchill will cement Pamela's position in the family as well as in the middle of Winston Churchill's heart. Right. Right. His near-do-well son finally did something awesome. <laughs> and I have pretty a much. grandson, mm-hmm. and I love his wife, and she brings me scones and tea and listens to me at my feet, wrapped about all the bullshit I talk every and day. And until we defeat the Nazis, I can keep my near-do-well son <laughs> far away from me, and I don't even have to worry about him. Kind of. I like her better. <laughs> So during the war, Winston Churchill is confiding in Pamela about his doubts and concerns and the necessity of the United States to join forces with the Allies. And all of this is glowy, glowy attention for Pamela. She's gaining confidence and that (laughs) she will realize that all men, no matter how powerful, 
have self-doubt and vulnerabilities. Thanks, Winston Churchill. I learned it by watching you. She's going to use this knowledge to her advantage with men throughout her life. Like, it's a safe relationship. Mm -hmm. But she gets to learn how older, powerful men work. And Winston Churchill realizes that he can use Pamela's beauty and charms to his advantage. So Churchill thinks it's possible that Pamela can help convince the United States to join the war. Why not? Have you met my daughter-in-law? Avril Harriman Mm -hmm. and Harry Hopkins are Roosevelt's right-hand men in London. So Winston knows if the United States is going to join the war, he's got to persuade Avril Harriman and Harry Hopkins first. So Churchill begins bringing Pamela to diplomatic dinners and cocktail parties, going to all kinds of sophisticated places, the Churchill Club, the Savoy, the Dorchester. Avril Harriman is 49 and married Uh when he meets 20-year-old Pamela. Also married, for what it's worth. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> keep in mind the ne'er-well do son Randy is fucking around and having a great time. I'm but sure. So is Pamela mm-hmm. about to be. Mm-hmm. Pamela says <laughs> about her reaction during the first meeting, I never set eyes on a more beautiful man in my life about Avril Harriman. I'll let you make of that what you will. Quickly. Pamela becomes friends with Harry Hopkins and becomes lovers with Avril Harriman. Harriman will go as far as putting Pamela up at her own residence in Grosvenor Square Hmm. under the guise that she is his daughter's friend. Yikes. So this moves her out of her father-in-law's... Sure. Okay. It's for the war, babe. Oh. It's for the war. Well, isn't Mr. Winnie quite... Well, the affair, right, makes her enormously influential and useful to Winston Churchill sure. because Avril Harriman is the most powerful American in England, and Pamela is able to tell Winston Churchill about all of Avril's private views and how America's right. feeling and the latest cable they got from Roosevelt, right? This is amazing. I wonder if Harriman understood that she was sort of acting as an intelligence operative. Like, you don't think about U.S.-U.K. diplomacy in those terms, but that, that sounds like what you're describing. Okay, well, Pamela has other things going on. Oh. Just, just so you don't think she's spending all of her time with Avril. Uh, she's also simultaneously having affairs with her Grosvenor Square neighbor, John Hay Jock Whitney, who will soon be divorced from Liz Altimus, one of the Palm Beach Society matron ladies, and about to marry Betsy Cushing, lives in the middle of her mother's heart, Babe Paley's sister. This goes back to the yeah, Patreon series. Okay. So Jock Whitney is later going to become U.S. ambassador to Britain. That's not all. Pamela is also carrying on an affair with respected CBS broadcaster Edward R. Murrow. Jesus. Who, no, wait, who she meets through another lover, Head of CBS, William S. Paley, who is the husband of Babe Paley, who we talked about in week one of the swans. Whoa. Did you get all that? I would say the swans would not have accepted Pamela as a swan as she has literally fucked every one of their husbands and their sister's husbands. 
Okay, so her warriors were surprisingly fun. Oh, she was having a great time. This is why she'll never be a swan. <laughs> what did Truman call her? Marvelous primitive. Mm. There you go. All right. During the Blitz, there are important military men in diplomatic affairs coming to London. Churchill is heavily relying on Pamela to charm and entertain them. It's for the war. The pragmatism here is off the charts. Bite your lip and think of England. Not sure whether to be (laughs) impressed or horrified. She once described her skills at seducing men as making them believe the whole universe revolved around only them. She said it has nothing to do with what happens in bed. Whatever her secret, there is no doubt that men are enchanted by her. Personality or a magic vagina? Again, I'll let you decide. But for as long as the war is going on, Pamela's in her element. She has a job. She is excellent at her job. She's in the middle of all the action. She's playing a key role. Her prime minister father-in-law relies on her. She's carrying on 19 affairs. She's whoring around and not coming home for Christmas with her kid. Life's pretty great. It all ends. 1945. When Randy and Pamela divorce. Hmm. War is over. I see. He comes Mm -hmm. home from the war and she's like, actually. Actually. I gave you the sun. (laughs) Bye-bye. They divorce. War is over. Winston Churchill no longer needs her to entertain for him. Avril Harriman returns to his wife. And Pamela has fallen deeply in love with the brooding and intellectually stimulating Edward R. Murrow. But he's married, too. But Edward R. Murrow loves Pamela so much, he proposes marriage. And her future seems like, yep, divorce this guy, marry this other guy. I love him. This is great. Murrow flies home to tell his wife that he wants a divorce. But here, Edward R. Murrow will learn that his wife was pregnant after 10 years of no pregnancies. So he decides to stay married. Pamela's heartbroken, and at this point, she is not held in high regard by any respectable member of London society, so Pamela's going to need to figure out a new plan. So without a whole lot of options left for her in England, Pamela's going to head to Paris to make a new life for herself. It's post-war Paris, right? Sure. The Churchill name means more in Paris than it ever did in England. There's a lot of cachet there. Mm-hmm. Additionally. <laughs> Her risque reputation only made her more attractive. Oh, than I'm sure. France. I'm sure. So she quickly becomes an integral member of the British expat embassy community, which includes Kit Kennedy and Lady Diana Cooper. Spiderwebs. Here in Paris, she's going to carry on affairs with dozens, and I mean dozens of important men. Pamela Harriman is. Partly what we're going to talk about in Spiderwebs this week on Wednesday. Just to give you a few. Prince Ali Khan. Who's married to Rita Hayworth? Mm. Gianni Agnelli. Who will a few years later go on to marry Maria, another one of the swans that we'll be talking about in January. Ali de Rothschild. Frank Sinatra. The list is extensive. Lots and lots of lovers. How does she pick up the additional last names? 
I'm so glad you asked. Let's talk about it. Excellent. Because she's in Paris, having a great time. Sure. Being kept as mm-hmm. mistress of lots of important men. And that goes well enough for a while. But by the late 1950s, Pamela needs new hunting grounds. She's middle-aged. She feels like she's losing her looks. And her appeal in Paris has waned a bit in the last decade and a half. She has failed to secure a prosperous marriage with any of her European lovers. Here she sets her sights on Leland Hayward, with whom she had met a few times and had several mutual friends. Now, Leland Hayward, legendary producer, agent in Hollywood, married to Slim Keith. Okay. Okay. Hayward is gruff. He's masculine. At least on the outside, but needy on the inside. And his marriage to his wife, Slim Keith, is on the rocks. She's not Slim Keith then. His marriage to his wife, Slim, on the rocks. She had recently admitted to having a one-night stand with Frank Sinatra and a six-month affair with Peter Vertel, who was the screenwriter for the Old Man in the Sea film. So their marriage is on good ground. Oh, yeah. Their marriage is stale. Rocks. Lots of problems. <laughs> Slim is not having her needs for adventure or excitement or sexual fulfillment met. Leland is not having his need for the pampering and adoration quite met. So remember, we talked about this last week. Slim is going to go to Europe with her BFF, Lauren Bacall. They're going to traipse around Europe, go visit Hemingway. It's lots of fun. But while they're there, Leland gets asked by Babe and Bill Paley to attend a show. Slim's not going to be there. Oh, we know this. Invite Pamela to be your date at the theater. We're going to be gone. It's fine. Remember, Pamela even calls Leland before they have the date and starts turning on the charm. Her attention is laser focused on Leland Hayward, who is... Hungry for female attention and coddling and a good ego boost. Pamela sees Leland and is like, target acquired. The two of them have their, please escort her to this place so she's not alone. The two begin their affair that night. Magic something. Magic something, Pamela. Pamela and Leland are going to marry in Carson City, Nevada on the same day that his divorce From Slim is final. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. The two live a highly extravagant lifestyle. They spend tremendous amounts of money. It has been reported that Pamela is spending about $10,000 a year on flowers in the 1960s. It's $80,000 a year on flowers if you were to convert. You can grow for so much less. (laughs) According to her stepdaughter, Brooke Hayward, Pamela had more jewelry and diamonds that she had ever seen, even in a jewelry store. I guess if you've had dozens and dozens of extremely well-off lovers, you got a lot of jewels. You got a lot of bling. So Pamela and Leland are also fine art connoisseurs, and they like to buy and collect expensive pieces of art. So there's a particular time that Brooke Hayward brings her husband, Dennis Hopper, to a dinner party at their house. Dennis is in New York to do a TV show and they go visit. And Dennis is like, oh, I like that painting on the wall. And Pamela immediately says to Leland, I think we should leave this painting to a museum. 
Pamela was very territorial and didn't want Leland's kids to get yes what she considered to be rightfully hers. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Brooke will tell (laughs) Sally Bedell Smith about her dad's (laughs) attraction to Pamela. I didn't get it. There was no razzle-dazzle. I couldn't figure this out. She didn't know about politics or the theater. She was a banal milkmaid, a little plump, certainly not beautiful. She wore expensive clothes, but she didn't have flair. Hmm. In February 1971, Leland Hayward has a massive stroke and dies four weeks later. When the will is read, he's broke. There's very little left in his estate. Pamela and Leland had spent so freely during their marriage that all of his tremendous wealth and earnings from his Hollywood agent production, I mean, he produced, Leland Hayward is a huge deal in Hollywood. Broke. Brooke says that after the reading of the will, Pam was furious and thought she'd have a heart attack. It's hard to know how much exaggeration is in that description from Brooke, but even Pamela's brother, Lord Digby, said that Pamela spent a lot of that time crying that she was ruined and she was very concerned about her status. Are you worried about Pamela? I'm not. There are more names. She's going to be married again in six months. Let's Uh talk about it because after settling all of Hayward's affairs and taking a brief trip down to Palm Springs to spend some time with Frank Sinatra, Pamela's going to get on back to Europe. She's not welcome at social functions in New York at this time because I think it's probably not very hard to guess. Every married woman in New York is on alert because it's Pamela. She steals husbands and she's single now. Digby Churchill Hayward, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone looks at Pamela with suspicion, skepticism. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not even allowed to be in the same room as right. my husband. Husband's no better than to speak of her in the presence of their wives. Okay. That's it. Pamela will later say this was the only time in my life that I was desolate. She will live in her son Winston's apartment near Parliament. She refers to it as a closet. It's terrible. I mean, did she have to be introduced when she showed up? Brooke Astor says of Pamela during this time, she realized that she was more American than English. During that time, Washington Post editor Catherine Graham is hosting a dinner party. Her daughter, Lally Weymouth, lives near Pamela and decides she'd rather not attend the dinner at her mom's house and she doesn't feel good. So she calls her mom. She's like, listen, Pamela's feeling kind of low. She'd love to be asked. Can Pamela just come in for me tonight? And that way you don't have an extra spot at dinner and you're social great. Like Everybody's fine. Okay. Catherine Graham says, great. Pamela's welcome to attend. And Pamela's like, great. I have something to do. Pamela flies to Washington for the party. Wait on it. Out of nowhere. This is where it all comes back around. When Pamela arrives, she notices the 76-year-old Avril Harriman is at the party. Conveniently, Avril had been widowed the previous year. So the two enjoy each other's company, Mm -hmm. agree to get together again. Old, old friends. Peter Duchin, who will go on to marry Brooke Hayward after her divorce from Dennis Hopper, recalls coming home after dinner with friends, flipping on the lights and finding the two together on the couch. 
Avril's top was open and his pants were undone. It was like catching two teenagers. Wow. So Pamela and Avril obviously pick up where their wartime romance mm-hmm. left right off all those years ago. Since their romance all those years ago, Harriman had been posted as ambassador to Moscow, secretary of commerce, and was governor of New York, confidant to JFK, well-respected leader in the Democratic Party. Harriman is also heir to the Wells Fargo and Union Pacific Railroad fortunes. Hmm. So you could say his riches are vast. Yeah. When he reunites with Pamela, one of his advisors comment about the checks that they had been sending to her every month. And Harriman's like, huh? What do you mean? And they're like, yeah, your estate's been sending Pamela a monthly check for the last 30 years. Pamela and Avril, go to Mary, September 27th, 1971, eight weeks after their reunion at Catherine Graham's party. Harriman, happy with her. She's devoted to him. He is, right, 77. He's been lonely. He's longed for companionship since his wife died the previous year. Pamela's thrilled to be with Avril again, to live his lifestyle, the money. But he is also esteemed. He's a powerful in political circles. Avril Harriman is her ticket back to social prominence and respectability. Mm-hmm. According to Alita Morgan, who is Harriman's granddaughter, Pamela immediately starts taking over his life and controlling who he sees. Granddaughter comes to visit and the doorman tells her she'd have to now make an appointment. Wow. Mm-hmm. Granddaughter never sees him alone again. Oh, that's not great. Neither does his sister. Neither do their mother. Yikes. Pamela intercepts notes. She listens in on phone calls. She never leaves him alone with any of his family. Okay. Pamela and Avril do make quite a powerful and influential couple in the Democratic Party. Pamela is going to begin hosting what she calls issues meetings. She can fundraise like nobody has ever seen. She becomes involved in determining candidates, making some high-level decisions. She will start something called the Pam Pack and is the first to recognize Bill Clinton's political potential. She educates him, takes him under her wing. Bill Clinton will acknowledge her importance in making him president. And during her eulogy, he said he would not be where he was if she hadn't been where she was. Clinton is going to repay the favor to Pamela Harriman by making her ambassador to France. That's cool. Ambassador to France. Yeah. What? She's going to have the last laugh. She's going back to Paris, not as a courtesan. Right. But as a powerful diplomat. Mm -hmm. Avril Harriman, unfortunately, does not live long enough to see his wife's success and influence. He will die July 1986 at the age of 94. Pamela has an empty casket buried next to his first wife, Marie. She keeps Avril's body refrigerated for two months for having him buried in another plot where she will be buried next to him. Oh, my God. Biographer Christopher Ogden said, In life, Pamela always had been forced to share her men. She was damn well not going to share Avril in death. Hmm. hmm His kids are going to take legal action against Pamela regarding their father's estate. The legal battle is nasty. It's trashy. It lasts for years. It is covered in great detail 
by every newspaper, every magazine. After it's all settled, Pamela says, thank God it's over. I don't have to see any of them again. So as ambassador to France, Pamela spends her final years on top. She's a center of attention and power. She's able to use her charm and she works really hard to do a good job. She spends a lot of time with Jacques Serac, who will honor her with the Grand Cross at her funeral. In a perfectly fitting end to her extraordinary life, Pamela, at the age of 76, will have a stroke while swimming in the pool of the Ritz mm. Hotel in Paris. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton sends Air Force One to bring Pamela home to it's, be buried in the U.S. It's only Air Force One if the president is aboard it. Otherwise, it's just a sparkling airplane. <laughs> Pamela had become a U.S. citizen during her marriage to Avril Harriman, and she was given a state funeral at the National Cathedral. That's a genuinely fascinating life, mm-hmm. like to advise Winston Churchill during World War II, <laughs> then represent the United States abroad. Never gives up on her dreams. Yeah. Risk taker. Doesn't care what her critics say. While many will ridicule her during her lifetime, Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said this about Pamela. She was a central figure in the history of this century. America has lost a remarkable representative. The State Department has lost one of its most effective diplomats, and I have lost a friend. Pamela will give an interview in her apartment at the American Embassy in Paris in 1996 and sum up her feelings about life kind of in a perfect way. She's asked, is there anything you'd wish you'd done differently? No, she said. Really, no regrets. I consider I have had a very fortunate life. A happy life? (laughs) Very, very. I drank deep of the well. I drank deep of the well. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, you did. Did you ever? As trash cans go for divorces, there's Randy Churchill, but you knew what you were getting into when you married that 'er ne'er-do-well, right? The other two, she's left a widow. But as individual performance awards go, (laughs) Pamela, you are the goddess of trashy. I don't even know what mathematical component to put on groundbreaking trashy achievement level here. Yeah. Yeah. That is Pamela Digby, Churchill, Hayward, Harriman. Not a swan. There's a lot of names. Yeah. I need to take a breath. Yeah. God. Yeah. Take a shower. Take a breath. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? Dude, Pamela. I love it. Ballsy. Just a sexy giant of the 20th century, apparently. <laughs> Two different ways the stories can go. I don't think that Pamela Harriman and Bonnie Lee Bakley are that far off. They're They've not. They really... grifted just... Grifted in very different ways sure. in very different circles. Yeah. Fascinating. What one of the big differences, Bonnie Lee Bakley's parents made fun of her and her sister all the time when they were kids. That's terrible. Told them they were ugly. Yeah, it's not Pamela's parents. You're yep. the most beautiful girl in the world. Amago. It's a thing. Hey, be nice to your kids. Yeah, be nice to your kids. <laughs> Things go badly when you're not. So anyway. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We were delighted to have you this week to listen in. 
Come back next Sunday for more Trashy Trash. Absolutely. In the meantime, if you need more Trash Candy, we got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday happening over on Patreon. We got more swans coming up this week. Pamela's Trashy Affairs. Oh, we have some royal prince trashy mistresses stuff too to tie in. So it should be fun over there. Am I forgetting everything? Probably. This whole episode's just been a roller coaster. Thanks, (laughs) y'all. For tuning in. Please, everyone, wash your hands a whole lot. Oh, keep those masks on. Double mask if you're able. Keep your hearts entirely trashy. Very trashy. And we'll be back next week. See you then. Bye. Bye, friends. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.